Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sound of speech. This is show number 10. Can you believe it? It's incredible. And it is. And I'm Eric Armstrong. Joining and me here is... Philip Thompson. Hello. Hi. Um, so today is... Well, it's a beautiful, beautiful day here. How is it in California? It's, it's beautiful. Do I have to actually say that? It's always beautiful. It's always, oh, yes, I suppose. It never rains. There, Actually, does it. speaking of environmental conditions, it occurred to me when editing one of these that I might need to explain that we're having a beautiful new building built right across from where I'm recording this. So oh. every once in a while, there's the sound of progress in the background. I hope you'll forgive us. Right. And outside my office slash recording studio is the bus terminal, <laughs> and the buses sit right below my window and idle their engines all day long, polluting the atmosphere and making everyone grumpy. <laughs> so uh, here is at York University up in Canada. So we have one Californian and one Canadian, yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll have some fun today talking about the sounds of speech. Great. So our show, Glossonomia, follows a basic shape. We talk about a sound each week, a sound of speech. And this week is a consonant week. So we're going to dig into the sounds of f and v, the f and v sounds of English, uh, how it's made, the history of the sound, how it's spelled. Plus, we'll talk about any variations that we hear in different dialects or languages around the world, and any sort of parallel sounds that sort of fit within the same realm. Um, now, we, we've talked about pairs of consonants a lot. Yes, I but I don't know if we've used the word that I think is probably on the tip of your tongue right now. Wh is what is that word, Phil? Cognate. Cognate. Uh, a great word, uh, and one that you'll hear people talking about in, in foreign language study when words are similar between languages. In, mm. in this case, we're talking about consonants that are similar in their manner of production and their place of production, but different only in terms of voicing. So uh, that was probably a lot of technical jargon. Basically, we're saying those sounds are made in exactly the same way, except that in one, your vocal folds are vibrating, you're making voice, and in the other, it's just a, an unimpeded stream of air. So in this case, v is voiced and f is unvoiced. I right. find actually that I sometimes have to, when introducing this to my students, deal with a moment of confusion because if I say a consonant and then a vowel, as in fa, there's voicing in the ah uh part of that, but that's not the consonant. The consonant is only f, and the right. uh comes afterwards. It's interesting how we, we so rarely just make a consonant sound. We, we say fa and va rather yeah. than f and v. Um, and all of our letter names for consonants are things like f and v. Yeah, exactly. Um, the... In, in doing that same spiel when I'm teaching it, um, it's funny how many students have never realized that the f and v sounds are cognates. Um, I, 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 I guess that because they're not taught as pairs and they're so far apart in the alphabet, people don't think of them as being similar in the same way that the two sounds we represent by the th, th symbols, digraph, um, People, well, of course those are similar, they're paired together, but fa and va, are not, it's not so obvious. Well, and I think part of it is that the experience of, the, the tactile, tactile experience of the flow of air or the, the voiced stream 
is really different. It feels mm. different to have that air coursing over your lip in f- and maybe the air is flowing a little more slowly or it's masked by the vibration and v- feels very different. Yes, I, I agree that there there is a different feel to it. Now, when we're talking about these sounds, we're talking about, you, you said the unimpeded stream of air, but it is impeded a little bit, isn't it? Because it's what we call a fricative sound. So it's a sound that has a friction in it. Um, and so the airstream is is somehow being squeezed through a narrow gap, um, and that makes some turbulence. And you could say that the, the difference between f and v is uh, whether it's impeded once or twice, that hmm. there's the I- impediment of the vocal fold action in a voiced sound, which probably slows down the airstream a little bit. And so v- if I took the lip articulation out, I'd get v- So. Th- that's different than the air flowing out uh, from my larynx is not being interrupted by phonation. Right. Um, and, of course, the has the noise of your vocal folds, so you don't need to make as much turbulence in order to make the noise. And I think that's really true. I think that when you hear people saying f, they're putting a little bit more tension, a little bit more activity into that. And in v, they can do it much more lightly. Right. The, in other kinds of phonetics, uh, these, ter- these sounds are not called uh, voiced and unvoiced or voiceless. They're called fortis and lenus, mm-hmm. lenus being the weaker of the two, and that is the v sound. So uh, an interesting, interesting comparison. Um, and I think it's kind of neat to think about fricatives just for a moment before we narrow in on uh, fa and v that uh, if we compare uh, fricative sounds like f, th, s, and sh, if you uh, link those together, th, you may be able to hear how each of those frictiony sounds have uh, perhaps a, f- a focus place for the, the friction mm-hmm. so that there is a, an, a slight overtone shift. Uh, just comparing f and th, uh, slightly different locus or focus to that friction sound that makes it distinct. Well, they're, n- they're not very different, though. No, and that is a testament to our ability to detect tiny little differences in the spectrum of sound that we're, we're hearing, as you say, overtones, slight differences in the, in the pitch, really, which pitches are emphasized in which are not in that very noisy stream of sound. But it's also true that sometimes we do make mistakes between sounds that uh, think and think sound pretty similar, in fact. And as we talked about in Feve, there's some accents in which that is a a full substitution. Mm. Uh, However, what we're detecting is acoustics. We're detecting differences between energy bands in the spectrum, in the spectrogram. And they're tiny in this case, but we can still tell the difference. Yes, our ears are very sophisticated in making those subtle distinctions. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I, I thought we might mention is the fact that fricatives, 
we look at the IPA consonant chart for the pulmonic consonants, those that are powered by the breath stream, uh, the row, the rows of that chart are the different manners or ways of making consonants. And the one row mm -hmm. that's completely filled in is the fricative row, that there are more fricatives as a, a, a way of making noises in your mouth than any other kind of consonant. Which indicates it's a, a richer, uh, there, there are more possibilities for distinction. We can make distinctions between those sounds, and therefore we do, that f and th, if we make that distinction, they do sound different, and we can detect that difference. Uh, whereas uh, the difference between p, with a bilabial plosive, and p, a labiodental plosive, is not really, not really distinct. And so no language uses a labiodental plosive. I just had a, an alarm go off in my head. The the nerd alarm, <laughs> uh, uh, labiodental. I think we need to backtrack. Yes. Uh, what what's that? What's uh, that place? One thing that people can do is go back to the previous uh, uh, episodes to uh, deal with questions like plosive and fricative and so forth. But we haven't yet dealt with labiodental, and that's where we are today. So, bilabial means both lips, and labiodental means lip to tooth. I'll put in another bit of nerdishness here. It's dangerous, but I'll try. Uh-oh. Brace yourselves. When you have the sort of combining form labio, uh, what you're saying is lip goes to tooth, labio-dental. If I were to say a labial-dental, I would have to be doing something with lips and with teeth at the same time. So ah. there's a distinction there. Uh, the combined word tells us what goes to what. Right. And in fact, for people with severe underbites, you can have dentolabials yeah. where your lower teeth are making an F sound with your upper lip. Yeah. Which is a, a difficult thing to do in connected speech, I would imagine. Unless you have an underbite. Yes, exactly, exactly. King Philip of Spain. Perhaps. <laughs> that was a visual joke, not very appropriate for a podcast. We need a video stream. <laughs> okay, so we've got voiced and unvoiced labiodental fricatives. So that's the big, big names that we hear when we uh, explore this. And it seems that we've explained each one of those items in turn. Voiced and unvoiced, labiodental fricative. And usually our descriptions happen in that order. We talk about the voicing, the condition of the glottis, you could say. We talk about the place of articulation. And then finally, we talk about the manner of articulation. VPM, that's the <laughs> order. Now, do we need to explore any further these, these ideas of, of how to make the sound? I don't think so. I think that we may get into it when we talk about variations. Yes, I think so. So we can start to talk about spelling. Um, and I... Why don't I give you a brief overview Please. of the spellings? Um, the f sound, f as we're known, we know it. Well, it's pretty darn simple. It's it's represented mostly by the sound f, the letter f in English spelling. Um, though there are other variations. It's sometimes represented by f f, 
So in a word like off or awful, we might have two Fs. Um, sometimes it's represented by GH in words like cough and draft and enough, uh, laugh or rough. You get the idea. The other variation, of course, is PH that we hear in things like philosophy and phlegm, phonetics, uh, phonology. Um, in Russian words and names, final V becomes an F, so we get Chekhov or uh, uh, Romanov. Um, so final final V, Peter Ustinov, uh, written written with a V, pronounced with uh, an F sound. Now, uh, we'll come back to how what happens to words like calf when it gets pluralized. Mm -hmm. um, v as a sound. Uh, is re represented generally by V. Um, so words like vaccine and vacuum, uh, Vancouver. Um, uh, it can be double V in words like savvy. And those, occasionally, uh, yes. Sorry? I just want to say double Vs are very rare, and they're always newer words because of the identity of V and U and W in the history of spelling, which we, mm. we can come back to. Uh, okay. But if you see a double V in a word, it's probably new. Interesting. Interesting. There are rare occasions where PH is represented with a, as pronounced as a V, like Stephen, um, which probably historically may have been more of a Stephen that became Stephen over time. Yeah, another example would be nephew, but that was originally spelled N-E-V-E-W-E. And so the spelling of V, the voiced form of that, is actually was retained for quite a while. And I'm not quite sure why the spelling changed. Maybe it was mm -hmm. borrowed from somewhere else. Or maybe it was just by analogy from Stephen. Interesting. Uh, but those are, those are rare. And nephew is, is dying out. Indeed, indeed. Fewer and fewer uh, English speakers, particularly in the UK, are saying nephew and more and more saying nephew. But its original spelling was with a V. So that, that was the older and original pronunciation. And so, so the people who like that pronunciation, they can defend it by <laughs> yes. saying it's older. And they should right? spell it that way then, just to get everything all as old as possible, <laughs> since that's somehow a, a virtue. Uh, I wanted to yes. talk a little bit about this GH uh, spelling. And mm. we, we do like to research things here, but this one is completely out of my back pocket, if you will. Uh, it occurs to me that the process since GHs in English spelling uh, were ch sounds, the the mm. the yor, uh, that in many cases disappeared completely. So nicht became night. Uh, in that process of moving uh, from a mouth articulation to an H, we talked about that before as debuccalization. This seems like a different direction, so that enoch actually moved forward in the mouth in articulation. Mm. And so for several of these words, th the process moved forward in the mouth. And it makes me think I ought to research this uh, and come back with a tidbit because that seems like the opposite that a lot of those spellings moved in English. Hmm. I wonder whether there was a transitional phase where it was not ch but a h sound. Hmm. And so we went from kach to kach to cough, because uh, and f, not that far apart. And that's a general. Whereas cough, 
it's a movement for, for their it would be a lot harder sell to say that it had gone all the way back to the debuckalized version of basically an H and then moved forward in some words into an F. Um, right. Yeah. Not likely to have gone caw, 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 caw to cough. <laughs> exactly. No. I can't see that happening. Okay, well, very interesting stuff. So I promised a little short discussion of what happens to words like calf and loaf, yeah. that when they get pluralized, we get the V pronunciation. So calf becomes calves. Uh, and in the verb, to calved, the, the, he calved his horse uh, or cow, right? Cows get calved? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's calving season. <laughs> calving season. Uh, so half halves, halved, um, you say knife and knives, but you don't get knived, <laughs> you get knifed. That's a, an unusual one. Uh, one wife, two wives. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, probably historically, uh, the F pronunciation became a V as part of, uh, of older English forms, and we gradually dropped that uh, kind of change of pronunciation that we relied on the S-Z uh, pronunciation that we have today. It, you know, it used to be that plurals had uh, different ways of being pronounced. And, and in fact, that has something to do with the, the history of F and V in terms of how the letters were pronounced, which I think we're going to move on to now. So perhaps I'll, uh, I'll save that for a moment. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll talk. Let's just talk briefly about the letter shape. Okay. Um, do you think it's best to talk about V first and then talk about F? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, um, in, in a nutshell, can you can you can you sum it up in a nutshell? Uh, yeah. Uh, the I don't know how to pronounce the Semitic letter, which is spelled W A W. I think it's something like wow. I, I think you're probably right, and that seems to indicate a bilabial pronunciation. Yeah, and so that's the original, the, the beginning point of that letter, and and you can see that there's a similarity in shape. In Greek, that sort of moved into the upsilon. So the upsilon to us looks like a Y. Yeah, exactly. And the wow looked sort of like a, a capital Y, but the the V part of the Y looks more like a U. Indeed. You could see that a Y shape and a V shape are very, very similar. And if you lose the tail of your Y, you get a V. Uh, so in, in Latin, there was this sort of version, of a stemless Y, you could say. Uh, and that moved into Latin really as a sort of a variable sound, but as an U sound, both sort of vowel and consonant. So... Uh, you might see uh, veni, vidi, vici, uh, spelled with a V, but it was probably pronounced by Latins as veni, vidi, vici, which is less cool, I think. It's a cool thing to say, but seriously, veni? And wiki? Exactly, exactly. I, I Latinized, the, I Italianized the pronunciation there. Wiki is right. So it was also true that U sounds use this symbol as well. And in fact, this, a similar thing happens in the Welsh alphabet. The, there's a W symbol that stands for both the consonant and the vowel. Hmm. And you could think of W as a sort of a vowel. Now, there, there's a development of that W as a bilabial articulation towards a more closed bilabial fricative articulation, V. And it's an easy step from that to a labiodental 
pronunciation of v. And it gets a little confusing to me in the development both of the Latin language and the Latin alphabet, the Roman alphabet, when it was pronounced as a w and when it was pronounced as a v and exactly how that transitioned. So I, I'm going to claim ignorance on that unless you can enlighten me. Mm, yeah, I mean, the, Wikipedia says it's somewhere around the first century AD, but um, how do we yeah, know? Indeed. Uh, but certainly those of us who are used to looking at o older Shakespearean texts are used to seeing the symbol V to stand in for a W sound. Or, or, or a, a U sound. Exactly. And vice versa, that U and V are all interchangeable. It's true, too, that in the development of English pronunciation, that V sound was often pronounced uh, in medial positions in a very light way. So, heaven and seven. Uh, if you look at how the word have occurs often in Shakespearean meter, it'll often be compressed. So, I have will be one syllable, as in, I've done the deed, didst thou not hear a noise? Whether they said I've or I have done the deed uh, is up for debate. Right. But certainly it was relaxed. And we get words like devil and evil often being written with a U instead of a V and perhaps an indication that devil and evil might have been elided into one syllable or at least a softer kind of lenition process of the V sound. It's, it's interesting, though, to note on the word devil that it's sort of related to diabolic. Uh, so devil and diabolo, that's a fortition of V. Uh, so V moving mm. towards B. So it's interesting that it goes both ways, that you could have a pronunciation of del, devil with barely any V or dibble. And I think I've seen that in some texts, D-I-B-B-L-E for devil. Right. In French, of course, it's diable. Exactly. So uh, clearly the Latin roots going through French come out a different outcome. Uh, it, it is interesting to me how variable those pronunciations are. And I think when we talk a little bit later about variation in different languages, we'll see that these there's a lot of fluidity in this particular phoneme. Yes. So 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 far we've got... U and V both being used interchangeably in Elizabethan times, and then slowly over time they become a little bit more solidified that F takes its role and V takes its role, uh, probably by the 16th century. And that's paired to a development in pronunciation of the letter F as well. Hmm. But also at a point where the, the written word is starting to be printed, um, and so... Uh, we're not seeing uh, calligraphic handwriting cursive forms where V and U, you know, when you got your messy inky pen, they look fairly similar. Uh, with type, uh, it, it becomes a little bit more clear, and then the uh, evolution of things like dictionaries make uh, language a little bit more solid. So uh, back to F. Uh, it's interesting to sort of point to the original letter, or the original symbol, the Phoenician symbol, as being the root of both of these, mm. uh, that this F letter morphed in a couple of different ways. Um, Phoen the Phoenician F is sort of a backwards F. Yeah, and that's pretty common in the development of these letter forms, that it's from Phoenician through Greek through Etruscan. There's usually this Etruscan to Latin flipperoo. It's like... The Latin said, love the alphabet, let's just tidy it up a bit. You're just backwards, you folks. <laughs> exactly. 
I kind of like to imagine them as uh, Paul Lind. <laughs> you just backwards a little bit. That's a nice way of thinking of, of the Roman Empire. So this Phoenician form became Upsilon, as we said, in Latin, uh, rather in Greek. And Greek had another symbol, the, the phi or the phi or the phi if it was bilabial. In a way, it's related to p and thought of as an aspirated form of p. And that does make a lot of sense. A bilabial plosive in that moment when the explosion occurs is a bilabial fricative if you do it slowly. So p, no problem. P, uh, that little blow of air. I'm trying not to point that towards the microphone because that'll be a problem later on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that puff of air. So that was what what became phi was initially pi. Yeah. Though uh, pi, the the Greek letter we all know from doing our um, geometry, is that what it is? Geometry? Algebra? Yeah, it's math. Um that that math symbol three point one four one five nine, um, it, uh, it it's the unaspirated equivalent, isn't it? Yeah, e- exactly. It's interesting to note. I'm I'm skipping here a little bit that an aspirated p, a ph, if you will, is similar to a f, and in fact, the spelling of f was conveniently noted by by Romans as ph. Uh, mm. So they had the same idea that we did. They were noticing that similarity in their spelling. And that's interesting. I mean, uh, the development of these alphabets that we start with the Phoenicians is the development of a phonetic system, uh, a way of writing down what things sound like. But because of its ubiquity, it's being used to describe so many different languages and languages changing through time that when we see the evidence in spelling, especially in the horrifyingly complex English spelling, what we're seeing is the phonetics being uh, drawn and quartered over language change. And so we see some record of it, and we see some change as well. Yes, in a way, our, our spelling, our orthography, is sort of a fossil record of the, the at one point, the sound connection to the spelling. Um, the, the sounds have moved on, but the, uh, hmm. the tradition is, is maintained in the spelling conventions. Um, okay, so I think we've gotten to the point where we talk, to, uh, we get to the F taking its its sound uh, and solidifying in English, as uh, yeah. the Latin alphabet is applied to English. Um, the there is, uh, of course, the history of the uh, typographical long form S that yeah. looks like an F and is always such fun when you encounter it in texts like "Such Sweet Suck." in uh, Shakespeare, um, that uh, there is some confusion when you're first getting used to that. Essentially, um, there's a little bump on the left side of the long S that looks like a crossbar, especially if there's a glob of ink stuck to it. Um, (laughs) But uh, that that a real F has a crossbar that goes all the way across, and that's the only difference. And they're not phonetically related at all. They were not meant to indicate the same sound. They're just similar characters. Yes, the, 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 the chunk of lead was hopeful, was trying to be similar to the cursive handwriting tradition of creating a long S in yeah. people's handwriting. Um, do you want to clarify um, phonetic notation? Is there, are, is uh, there actually, any weirdness here? 
I want to go back a step okay. and talk about the history of pronunciation in mm, English. Please. Because that F symbol used to be used alternatively for F and V. And uh, as far as I understand it, it was essentially they were the F and the V were allophones of a single phoneme represented by F. And so in Old English, the word of and the word off were essentially spelled with an F, both of them, and I think a single F. They weren't distinguished in spelling, and they weren't distinguished in pronunciation, except that F was used in stressed forms and V was used in unstressed forms. And so when you saw an F, it could represent both a V or a F, and the strong form was F and the weak form was V. It was only later when English started to uh, take on these Latin influences and then finally, as you suggest, uh, started to print things out that the V very stably represented the V sound and the F only the F sound. But if you look at a word like of, that's, that pronunciation is an indication of it being an unstressed word, uh, that that F was meant to be pronounced as V, uh, because the word was unstressed. Does that make sense? So uh, if you were stressing it, you might have said, get off off the table. Exactly. you don't stress of normally, so you would have exactly. said, get off of the table. Yeah. Right. And that shift is sort of evidenced in, in Welsh spelling as well, that the, the single F is V, uh, as in the name David, uh, and a double F is F. Uh, and I think I used both these examples uh, last time when talking about th and the. Uh, you and Griffith, uh, the F is a double F, so it's F. And the th or the is a double D. Uh, so David Griffith has a single F in David and a double F in Griffith. Oh, okay. And so that's a really a retention of an older way of thinking about how F operates. Now we've got V to stand in, so we're much better off. <laughs> I hope. I hope so, too. So uh, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious that F and V are represented by F, in the F and V in yeah. the International Phonetic Alphabet. Um, but I think it is worth talking about the, the sort of the, well, they're not very noisy neighbors, but they're, they are neighbors nonetheless that yeah. come up in other accents that we encounter yeah. that are either labiodental, uh, so they're made in the same place, just made in a different manner, mm -hmm. or they're fricatives that are made in a slightly different place. So uh, the, the place that we've already mentioned, which is quite close, is the bilabial place. And... Let's just take the f sound as a labio, unvoiced labiodental fricative. An unvoiced bilabial fricative takes all those same actions and just moves them to a double lip position. So, f. And it may be difficult to hear on the podcast, the dif difference between f and f. And I, I suspect that, you know, listeners, particularly if you're listening with headphones, you won't find it that different, d uh, difficult to distinguish the difference. Um, and a good example comes from Japanese. In yeah. Japanese, they don't have f. They use the bilabial fricative. And so we say 
Fuji, and they say Huzi. So the J sound is also different, but the initial sound is more of a H sound. Uh, it's a, it's like also a true that the U is different, too. It is. <laughs> yes, it's less lip-rounding. It's yeah. a spread U, Fuji. So uh, the... Uh, 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 I, I also like to think of, you know, if you go to a Japanese restaurant and you see they've got the characters, and then sometimes there's a m sort of microscopic characters above them. Mm. Those, those are essentially a phonetic alphabet that teaches you how to pronounce the uh, kana characters. Um, and, uh, the, sorry, the kanji characters. The little characters are called hurigana, which is, of course, written F-U-R-I-G-A-N-A. -A, and that huri is the the bilabial fricative. When I first heard it, I thought they were using an H, huri, but really the h is is gathered on the lips, hurigana. Um, I had that's another an interesting sound. An interesting experience in. Uh, I, I've I've used the example in describing this to students in the past of Japanese, and I was really surprised to uh, meet a Japanese speaker who did a bilabial but rather rounded and compressed lip position. So rather than a completely spread f, she was really closing the aperture, bringing her cheeks in, and making a very sort of narrow bilabial sound. Hmm. I'm not aware whether this is just an accent variation or whether I have a, a, an imperfect understanding of how Japanese uses this sound. Uh, but in any case, it's bilabial. It's also true, and this takes us back to some of our pre previous discussion, that those sounds are conceptually related to the plosive form. So the unvoiced bilabial fricative is considered a weak form of the unvoiced bilabial plosive. So pa, fa. Mm, okay. And it makes a lot of sense, but it's... Uh, it's the way it's discussed in, in talking about the Japanese language. Uh, mm. We should talk about the voiced form of the bilabial fricative as well, which in Japanese is also considered the weak form of the voiced bilabial plosive, b, and that's v. v. So f and v, I think they sound very similar to f and v, but they're the labio, rather the bilabial counterparts to the labiodental f and v. There's one more sound that I think is a, a kissing cousin to this phoneme, and that is the lab the labiodental approximant. Mm -hmm. I, we haven't dealt with an approximant yet. No, we haven't. So uh, I will just give a little sneak preview here. Uh, an approximant is a half-assed fricative. <laughs> uh, oh, no, uh, we'll, we're going to have to put an explicit tag on it. Oh, no. Uh, no, I, I, I pronounced it in the American. I meant a donkey. Uh, yes, half a donkey. Exactly. Uh, so the, it's not done very firmly, I guess you could say. And as I've been listening to various languages that use this labiodental approximate, I've become convinced that there's a real overlap uh, mm -hmm. in pronunciation, that many languages which are said to use a labiodental approximant use something that I would think of as a labiodental fricative, a voiced labiodental fricative. 
Okay. Those two territories overlap considerably. Okay. And now, we haven't really heard you make ah, said yes. labiodental approximant sound. So I, I'll do it with an ah uh, on either side. Okay. Ava, ava, ava. Now, so it's kind of a weak V. Exactly. Now, I have to say that when I've modeled this to my students and I'm trying to deal with the idea of approximants, I make it pretty darn weak. But when I listen to languages that use it and claim to be using it, they're saying ava, ava, ava. And that sure sounds like the fricative form to me. Maybe that also means that when I use v, the phoneme v in words, I'm actually realizing it in more of an approximate way. Right. So there's so it's easy to imagine saying a word like ever with a very weak ever, ever kind of approximate articulation. And that's what we were talking about when we were talking about this early modern English or, or Shakespearean way of pronouncing things. It's pretty easy to imagine that there's yeah. a sliding scale from v to v. Now, uh, the other sort of neighbor is the labiodental nasal consonant, and we get that in English uh, usually when we're anticipating a labiodental fricative. So if we have a, a word like an invoice, we'll usually make that N sound into a V-like N, invoice. Mm -hmm. There we're anticipating those uh, sounds. So we have words like uh, invest, infer, emphasis, emphysema, lymph, where we'll use the m sound, a sort of nasal V in a way, to make the, the transition from that N-like sound or M-like sound, depending on how it's spelled, into the, the uh, labiodental fricative. And I suspect that we'll come back when we talk about nasals to talk about this sound more completely. But yes. on its own, it is the an M made with the lip against the tooth, uh, which is certainly used in English in these positions you've mentioned. It's used in youthful English in initial positions when you say mom and you're smiling. Uh, I have a lot of students who use it pretty extensively. Uh, they have nice teeth, I suppose, and they want to show them off. Uh, I, I worked on a commercial once, and uh, I, I quite, not, not frequently, but occasionally get hired to be the hoser patrol, make sure that the Canadian actors don't sound too <laughs> Canadian for ads being marketed for the U.S. And uh, uh, I worked with a girl who smiled so much that she didn't articulate any M's. Uh, unfortunately, the product name had an M in it. And so they kept saying to me, you have to get her to close her mouth because they were going to uh, lip sync her. She had an atrocious, uh, not a Canadian sound, but she just had an annoying voice. And they, they didn't want me to make her not sound Canadian. They just wanted to make her mouth move appropriately. Well, and it's true that people doing overdubbing are really looking for lip closures to time off of. So Exactly. All right, we've delved too far into that. Let's come on back <laughs> to the, the land of fuh and v. So, yeah, you could certainly, as you suggest, we're always bringing our ums near to v's and fuhs. Uh, that happens in English. It happens in Spanish. Uh, I can't think of an instance in which we would do a complete substitution unless we were speaking in such a completely nasalized way that our v articulation, v, v, 
became a m because there was airflow going out through the nose. Right. It's not likely you would say ever as emmer. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> But not likely. Correct. Do you want to talk about variation through language? I have this chart here. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. That what we what we might encounter in different languages, uh, the uh, the amount of f and v in other languages. Somehow, when you say the phrase "the amount of f and v," it <laughs> seems like you're using an expletive. Uh, <laughs> that v, that f and v. <laughs> so yes, f this and a v. Thank you. Thank you. In languages, there is usually, as we've just said, either a f-v distinction or some kind of near cousin of f or v steps in to make that distinction. And an example of that is in Danish, rather than saying f and v, they say f and v. They use the labiodental approximant. I should mention one point that we didn't mention that is no language has an unvoiced labiodental approximate or an unvoiced approximate really of any sort because it's sort of hard to distinguish those sounds it's the alteration of the voicing that makes approximants really audible to us mhm if it was if it was an approximate like uh voiceless sound it wouldn't make any noise at all yeah. you need a closure to get turbulence to make the fricative and so this is danish sound f v That v is very close to a v, and it's accepted and transcribed as uh, an approximant. The symbol for which is sort of like a a loose, chubby v that has become rounded at the bottom. Yes, I think of it as a cursive v. Yeah, yeah. But again, Danish only has these two, so they have the same two-way distinction as we do. They just have a different sound for the v component. Right. Dutch, however. Does a three-way distinction between f, v, and v. So they really have a distinction between the labiodental fricative and the labiodental approximate. That is the voiced forms of those. Right. And so the uh, the sample words that I was given. Uh, the handbook of the IPA has wonderful sound examples, and if you listen to them, there's uh, the word for bicycle is feets, the word for oven is oven. Or rather, oven, and the word for face is vang. Mm. Uh, the sounds of the world's languages by Ian Madison and uh, Peter Latifoged also talks about the Dutch distinction. They point out, of course, that the approximant is spelled with a W. Yes. Uh, so we get F, V, and W in these this three-way split, um, and they they point out that uh, the words. Fi, v, and ri are uh, uh, Dutch words, and also feel, veel, and riel uh, are Dutch words. Though I didn't memorize what they mean. But I have uh, to say that that you're being careful to make a distinction between mm-hmm. the approximate form, and you're going much further. I find than they probably would. I find the distinction between their labiodental fricative and their uh, labiodental approximate. Really difficult to make out, right? Part of it is, uh, and we're not alone. A lot of German speakers who learn to speak Dutch struggle with that as well. A- exactly, and and they find themselves sort of in in the dark. The 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 study that you and I looked at uh, showed sort of a wide variety in people's ability to to get that sound. 
although apparently people who were taking Dutch classes did a much better job. So they were on the lookout for that distinction. They, they knew about it so they could detect it. Yes. Uh, it's also true that when I listen to the Dutch f and v sounds, they tend to be making them pretty strongly uh, with a little bit more energy. So v and v are distinguished even though the way I might say v could vary in my own speech between a strong and a weak form. So hmm. I can imagine recording a Dutch person saying a word with the labiodental approximant spelled with the W that would sound exactly like the way I say a word spelled with a V. There's another confusion to Dutch that I just have to bring in, which is that some Belgian dialects, instead of the V, the labiodental approximant, they use a bilabial fricative v instead. So this isn't a four-way distinction. It's a three-way distinction because there are three separate phonemes in the Dutch language. It's just that some dialects realize one of those phonemes in a different way. Uh, okay. And that's a, a little bit tricky uh, for people listening along at home. There are three different sound categories, and a speaker of Dutch will have different candidates in those categories. But no speaker of Dutch makes four distinctions between f, v, v, and v, because that would be hard. This is similar, in fact, to uh, what's going on in English. The Wikipedia entry on the way English uses this sound does what we already know, which is f and v. But then they offer a third candidate for the labiodental approximate, uh, which is a word like red. So the r sound in some accents is realized with a strong labial component. Really, Roger, you're right. Yes, very, very good, what you're talking about. <laughs> so that labialization, as you just indicated, tends in some accents to be really ubiquitous. And... Uh, it's a, uh, an idiosyncrasy. It's, I don't think it's really a definable accent of a particular population. That, that's probably a question for later debate. So it's really still a two-way distinction between f and v. Uh, so you could say fed, vet, and red. But the phoneme isn't a v phoneme. It's a r phoneme. I... Yes. I call shenanigans on that. Yes. Uh, it, it, you know, to many North Americans, I think that that would be perceived as uh, a pathological pronunciation, that uh, it's dysfunctional speech, and that usually a speech-language pathologist would be ushered off to work with that person on a fairly quick basis, whereas in the U.K., it's not perceived to it's be... It's really all right. Yes. Well, and it is interesting. It is a sort of a... Uh, early childhood development version of that sound that you'll hear in the United States. I was running. So right. it's not that American speakers don't use it. It's that they grow out of it because there's some sort of social pressure to grow out of it. Yes. Whereas in, in Cockney, but also in some very upper-class sorts of British speech, it's a perfectly acceptable way to speak. Yes, and it's important to be clear that uh, uh, though the the speech impediment or speech dysfunction uh, that we're talking about uh, is reminiscent of Elmer Fudd, 
uh, Mel Blanc doing Elmer Fudd was actually doing a, dub- a W. He was saying a wascally wabbit. Exactly. Which is slightly different uh, articulation. Exactly. Uh, I'll mention German, even though German has the same uh, distinction in pronunciation that we do between F and V. It becomes interesting because of the spelling. So the the F sound, the V, is spelled with a V. And the V sound, the V, is spelled with a W. So the way I always remember this is there's the car, the Volkswagen, which is referred to as a uh, is it referred to as a VW, a VW? I think it is. So mm-hmm. we would say Volkswagen, but in German it's pronounced Volkswagen. That's one reason why German speakers learning English will sometimes get abgefucked about it and they'll, they won't know how to pronounce it. I'll leave that for later. <laughs> Hawaiian has only one of these phonemes. Hawaiian has a really small consonant inventory, and so they have only the labiodental approximate. However, it they, they have a really small inventory of everything. Exactly. Very few vowels, very few consonants, and so they end up with words that are really, yeah, really long. They have plenty of syllables, <laughs> uh, but not so many uh, variations in sounds. They have a small inventory. So... It's usually written as a labiodental approximate, but then it's also possible that it can be realized as a w or a v, but still it's only one phoneme. It, it depends on context, is that right? I'm not so certain. I, I actually thought it was uh, dialectical variations, but mm. because if it varies on context, in context, that makes me start to think of it as a, a varying phoneme that words can be distinguished by that difference. But right. I'm not so sure. Uh, so the place is Hawaii, not ha- Hawaii. It's, it is that approximate. Exactly. I think that the sort of uh, standard form is the labiodental approximate. Right. Uh, I, I won't talk about Hindi, which has the same distinction. Uh, they do have, however, in the labiodental approximate place of a sound, which is also why sometimes Hindi speakers who speak English will sometimes substitute their vs and was a little bit. Uh, right. It's very nice, very nice. Uh, and you might even get very nice. Right. Norwegian has the same, Serbo-Croatian has the same f, v distinction. In fact, as I looked around, I found that the labiodental approximate was really very common uh, in other languages. Japanese, we've already discussed, doesn't have f, v, or v, but they do have f and v, the bilabial versions of those. Then the last one I want to mention is ewe, or ere, uh, which is uh, spoken in Ghana and Togo. Uh, it's a, there are a lot of speakers of this language uh, compared to some languages, and they have a four-way distinction between f V, f, and v. That is to say, uh, labiodental, unvoiced and voiced fricative, and a bilabial, unvoiced and voiced fricative. And it's true that they have a slightly stronger articulation of the labiodental version, and that helps to make the distinction. So there's a distinction between fa and fa. 
So it's in a way, it's almost as if it's got more aspiration on it. There's more air flowing through exactly. the fricative, makes it a bit noisier and and more distinct from the fa and va. And that makes sense. That we want our sounds to be distinct, so we know what word we're saying. Uh, if we were transcribing that phonetically, we'd probably want to put a little double line underneath it, which indicates strong articulation. So the double lines are horizontal, like an equal uh, sign, no, they're up or vertical. vertical. Uh, and in fact, you had mentioned before the symbols of disordered speech. This is an interesting overlap because this strong articulation, as far as I know, is only on the chart for disordered speech. Mm. It's not part of the regular IPA chart. If I remember that correctly, you might want to look in a book. So there are two different symbols. There's the double line, which is strong articulation, and a sort of angle symbol, which is a straight line with a, a short line depending from it on the right-hand side. And that means weak articulation, and the sort of sideways equal sign indicates strong articulation. And it's a very useful set of symbols because, in fact, in ordinary connected speech, there's a lot of variation between f and h. And certainly in our own speech, we, we make sounds more weakly or more strongly. And there are times when I ask my students to, to use these symbols to get very, very detailed. It's not useful necessarily in simply transcribing what's being said. But if we're being very careful and interested in tiny, tiny variations, as happen in normal speech, as happen in vocal characterizations, or as happen in accents, I think it's tremendously useful for students to investigate all of the possibilities, not just because they'll be able to transcribe them in really cool ways, although it's awfully cool. Awfully cool. But <laughs> tremendously. Uh, but also because they, they're going to have to then think about the difference between strong and weak articulation. So uh, I did find it, yeah. and it is in the extensions to the IPA, thanks to Wikipedia. Um, and it uh, it is indeed... Sort of like a quotation mark, mm -hmm. but just the two vertical strokes, not uh, not the two little 66 or 99. And the, there's its uh, partner uh, in articulatory strength. That's the weak articulation. And that looks like the corner symbol that's sometimes used for no audible release, yeah. but it's placed underneath the symbol. So you could have a strong <sighs> You could have a weak uh. I, I think it's probably important to mention that uh, if your students are using these symbols, I did have a student at one point uh, use the weakly articulated symbol, but he insisted on referring to it as the poorly articulated symbol, and I had to correct him on that. It's just not so strong. I like his, his uh, thinking. That might not be what I would say to a student, but for him, probably, that resonated. Yeah, he understood right? what he meant. Uh, unfortunately, it was in the transcription of one of his classmates' uh, speech. Who, so Who could take yeah, offense? Yeah, he continued to refer to her speech as poorly articulated. <laughs> we had words. <laughs> so we seem to have covered a lot of our distinctions here. Uh, We've talked about some of them that occur in other languages, and obviously that has some impact on how we do the accents of those languages. So if I'm doing a Japanese accent, I might want to look at my f sounds and see how I might produce them bilabially. That's part and parcel of a, a general sense of spreading 
that occurs in a lot of Japanese sounds, and so that might lead me to a conclusion about how the general posture of the mouth is held for Japanese speech, and that can be very informative when thinking about accent. I agree. In, and we just mentioned how a Hindi speaker might say, very nice, and make a, a labiodental approximate, because that's in their phonemic inventory, and v isn't. And similarly, w might not be in their phonemic inventory, and so we'd get both And that, there's a very similar distinction that is no longer made in Cockney speech that I, I should mention, and that is Don Walker, who is the author of a very early pronouncing dictionary, a dictionary that dealt with pronunciation. It was 1701, I think, 1791, and he talks about the Cockney accent and its various faults. That's his word. And uh, one of them was, the pronunciation of v for w, and more frequently of w for v, vine and wheel for wine and veal, which he called a blemish of the first magnitude. Now, that is something that you'll see uh, in Dickens, uh, in the Pickwick Papers, the character Sam Veller, it's pronounced as v, uh, he says, or somebody says in this book, you're a very good wife, substituting the w and the v. Shaw, at the time that Shaw was interested in these accents, uh, it had entirely disappeared, and he doesn't use it. Uh, here's, here's what he says about it. Uh, in the 1870s, uh, this is in an appendix to Captain Brassbound's conversion. Shaw writes, When I came to London in 1876, the Sam Weller dialect had passed away so completely that I should have given it up as a literary fiction if I had not discovered it surviving in, the Middlesex in a Middlesex village and heard of it from an Essex one. So it seems to me that that's some evidence from a linguistically sophisticated person that the accent really did exist. What he doesn't get into, though, is whether or not it's a complete inversion of w for v, a very good wife. Whenever I see that kind of substitution, I start to think that there's some middle form, uh, and we have a great candidate in the bilabial fricative, the voice bilabial fricative, v. So that one might have said, you're a very good wife. And uh, Dickens, listening to that, or Shaw listening to that, might have said, oh, you're saying v when I expect w, and you're saying w when I expect v, even though what's really being said is something straight in the middle. That's certainly true of Russian, which has a v sound in, in words like zdrazvoytje. That v sound is available to the Russian speaker, and he may apply it in every place. Or he might get confused about v and w and be able to use them, but use them in the wrong place. I don't understand how a Cockney speaker would be confused about the use of v and w if he had both of those in his consonant inventory. It seems much more likely to me that what he had in his consonant in inventory was something in the middle. Mm, that makes sense to me. Though it is possible to have inversions in, 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 accent, uh, in, 
yeah, regional accent forms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not common, but it, it does happen occasionally. Uh, and on sometimes on certain kinds of words, words that are very common or words that are very rare. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, that it might it it isn't impossible, but it I, I see why you're thinking the way you're thinking. Absolutely. And since we don't have any recordings of seventeenth uh, century Cockneys, I think we're just going to have to conjecture about that. But I agree. If you happen to be, for example. If you're reading a book on tape and you're doing Dickens, or I noticed that uh, Patrick O'Brien in his naval novels uh, uses this substitution as well. So you may find yourself having to make that choice as a reader. Uh, it's really rare. I can't imagine it happening in a play. I don't think Shaw uses it in any of his plays with Cockneys in them. But y- you might have to make a decision yourself about whether you're going to say, uh, very good wife or a very good wife. There's another English v confusion that I thought I might bring up at this point, and that is the West Country use of the voiced form v for f. The best example I can think of is in Lear. Edgar takes on the character of uh, a countryman to uh, defend his father from Oswald, who's attacking. Uh, and he has various weird things like Chivoria, but he also says, let poor Volk pass. Uh, I think he also says, Varmer instead of Farmer. And that's a pretty common West Country feature, although I'm sure right now it's probably completely gone. Uh, and that, I think, I don't really have any evidence of this, may come from these, uh, this original use of the F symbol to stand for both V and F. Uh, and mm. that the only thing that doesn't make sense is that F was the form used in stressed positions, and an initial position is almost certainly stressed. So the word written farmer in Old English, if it was written in that way, would be pronounced farmer because of the stress. But it's possible that the confusion and the blending of F and V in the development of English, remained in the West Country as uh, they ended up with the V form instead of the F form. That's another accent that is fairly rare. You may not be running into. Yes, I, I haven't had opportunities to coach that, so it's, uh, that shows that it's pretty rare. Yeah, I, and I'd say when you run across it in Lear, uh, all bets are off. You're, you're free to make up something because, after all, Edgar is making up something. Right. It, yes, it's as if he's doing his own version of Martin Short in uh, Parenthood, right, uh, where he <laughs> concocted his own accent exactly. out of nothing. Exactly. Uh, uh, like the chipper chicken. And that's always a fun challenge to do. Uh, I, I have an invented accent that I'm working on right now, uh, which the, the, the playwright invented a language. And so I had to come up with the pronunciation for that language and then the accent. Uh, another Does it end up feeling like you sound like something else? I've been trying to keep it in an Eastern European mode and then throw in a couple of sounds that violate that. But mm. what I'm finding is that it starts to sound like an inconsistent accent. So I'm, And the actors aren't very comfortable with it, so I'm letting it fade away. Right. Another invention... You know, a, 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 a sort of... 
little digression to story along that lines is uh, that uh, in Star Wars, in attempting to make up accents for aliens, they ended up sounding like Asians or like Jamaicans and got firmly criticized for uh, characterizing bad guys or uh, people with weak mental faculties uh, as sort of step-and-fetch-it kind of characters or uh, typical uh, cliches about Asians and Yeah, I have three words for you. Jar Jar Binks. Absolutely. And we will speak no more about that. So you got to watch out when you get those kinds of gigs. That's all I have to say. Uh, there's a, another invented accent since we're on the subject. We're off of Enver uh, for the moment. Uh, but it, it... Infented accents. Infented there we go. Exactly. We're on. Uh, Othello is a, a moor of Venice. What the heck is that accent, if he has an accent? And uh, at least once I've been asked to come up with a Moorish accent for him. Uh, and... There really isn't a model for that. It's something that has to be sort of discovered and cobbled together. And it, it ends up being kind of interesting. And uh, th there's some way of finding a consistency which doesn't obscure the language. Uh, isn't isn't a Moor, Moor in Venice, isn't that like an Englishman in New York that he's transplanted and so... Moors actually had their own speech form. We might not know what they sound that's, like. That's what I'm saying, is that I, I had to make it up. Right. Uh, and one of the options, and this is uh, uh, maybe a question for Shylock and Merchant of Venice, is wh what accent does he have if he has one? Does he outdo the people there in propriety? Or, uh, And that's certainly the division that... Uh, David Suchet and Patrick Stewart figured out in, that, in those famous John Barton videos. David Suchet had a sort of European-ish sound and Patrick Stewart was very, very posh. We've gone off track. Let's bring ourselves back to any other varieties of uh, and that we might find. One occurs to me, uh, and that is in Spanish, the, the phoneme in Spanish is the bilabial v. And it's realized, well, I'll put it this way. It may sound to our ears as a b. And so right. a Spanish speaker talking about a cow says la vaca. And that v sound is kind of like a v, kind of like a b. It's one sound. And so that when they hit an English word, ball, they might say avol, and use that same phoneme for a b. But they might also use it for a v and say, uh, this is a very common Spanish learning joke, I'm having trouble with my vowels, my vowels. Uh, vowels. And so that v, b, confusion, it's really just the over-application of a merger in Spanish which could go farther and the Spanish speaker could take on the articulation of b, they could get that strong form but not know where to apply it and say very good instead of very good. You know, I had I, I, sometimes it's also in the sort of the ear of the beholder that yeah. uh, I have a personal story that uh, I'm always a little embarrassed about oh, when my parents had a... Uh, 
a student staying with them after I had moved far away to Vancouver, uh, I came home uh, for a, a Christmas vacation, and this student from Chile uh, picked me up at the airport, and he said to me, So, you teach boys? And my <laughs> response was, No, I, I actually teach both men and women. <laughs> and uh, he repeated his, his question or statement many, many times, and I finally clued in that he was saying voice. Um, that is that not a story to be embarrassed about, but a wonderful story about how phonemic boundaries are resilient and that we insist on hearing what we think we're hearing. Yes. And, and that, uh, that for me, B and V did not cross over. And part of that is because in Canada we have until fairly recently had quite few Latino immigrants um, and so I, I have been exposed to far fewer uh, Latin Americans. Um, well, I think you know, there's compared to in California, I suppose you would be exposed to lots of Mexican Americans. Uh, indeed, I think there's another feature of that example which is interesting, which is that the word "voice" has an unvoiced sound at the end, and you were internally compensating for the. Spanish devoicing of final z, so yes. hearing boys, of course he's saying boys, uh, because there's no distinction between z and z for him. <laughs> so yes. there was a double thing going on there, which is fascinating. So I'm very sophisticated. I was just a bit too sophisticated <laughs> for my own. I I feel your pain, brother. Um, so uh, you sent me uh, a, an article on. Uh, labiodental pronunciation of Spanish. It came from a, a, a journal called España, and um, they talked a bit about there being um, really very few instances of v in in Spanish, and that uh, in some forms of Spanish that there is a sort of a, a precious form uh, of v where they. Um, they make a V, a pedantic V, yeah. um, to hypercorrect, to help people learn the spelling. That it, it's spelt with a V, so I'm going to say it with a V. And really, it wasn't until the mid-20th century that the, the Academy of Spanish, the Real Academia... Sounds I, good. My, does it? Okay. Um, they, they said, no, that's actually not accurate. That's not the way it should be said. Um, and uh, that the only r other instances are where people uh, have been exposed to a lot of English and they pick up V and they start to insert it into their Spanish or that they're anticipating a sound um, where there's a, a labiodental articulation that follows after. So they switch to the V, the v sound in anticipation of that. So that, that's interesting to me that really there there isn't normally a V sound. It's all subsumed into this other phoneme. I, I love, too, this idea of this hypercorrection. You know, what, like some people say often, and they insist on pronouncing the T, uh, both as a way of talking about the, the spelling, but also to demonstrate their correctness. And the, I understand the same thing in Spanish. Somebody might say, es una vaca. And to really, I can't right now because I pretty much don't speak Spanish, think of a distinction where the V sound could be spelled with a B or a V, 
But I think that that would be very unlikely because there's only one phoneme in Spanish. And so mm. the, 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 apparently there's something like a billiard, which is biar, and then viar. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, which is spelt with a V. Um, and I, I, I don't know what viar means, but uh, they, they should be both pronounced with a B right. like They're biar and biar. They're the same sound. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's – it's a really interesting thing to see how another language – deals with its own sort of internal conflicts. It's something that I'm only used to thinking about in English, and it's nifty to think about it happening in Spanish, rather than thinking about other languages as somehow being correct and ours being fluid. All languages are fluid. Yes, and evolving and changing. So uh, Spanish, I think, has some very interesting history to it, and those people who are lucky enough to know Spanish can tell those stories. And Hopefully we won't have to have another special episode <laughs> exactly. with your daughter I, I, in order to fix the hole that we've dug ourselves yeah, into. I live in dread. I'll, I'll call her up and ask her if, if we've screwed this up. <laughs> well, I think that takes us to yeah. the end of our Fava episode. Uh, yes, a one that would be cherished with a nice glass of Chianti. <laughs> um, so oh, the, I realize uh, that actually is a little labiodental sound that he makes there. <laughs> <laughs> You learn something new every day. <laughs> yes, it's an ingressive, ah. though, so a little bit different, not quite pulmonic. Um, <laughs> you know, we can, we can wreck just about any, any film reference <laughs> with phonetics. Um, okay, well, thank you very much, Phil, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And we'll be back in a week with another story, this time about a vowel. I don't think we figured out what vowel we're going to talk about next, but I'm sure it will be delicious. <laughs> Indeed.